Hi, my name is Sam Pito, and welcome to the 11th episode of my podcast, Understanding Healthcare. Today, I spoke with Dr. Stan Gerson, Interim Dean of the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and the Director of the Case Comprehensive Cancer Center and the National Center for Regenerative Medicine. Dr. Gerson is a leader in the area of hematology oncology and has won many awards for his research and subsequent discoveries in addition to his many leadership roles across the U.S. healthcare landscape. In our conversation, we talked about how COVID-19 has impacted medical education and the operations of healthcare organizations throughout the past year, how being a physician influences his administrative work, and his innovative research in the areas of stem cells and DNA repair. So, here's my interview with Dr. Stan Gerson. I just wanted to thank you so much for making the time to meet with me today. Uh, glad to help. What would you like to talk about? Uh, yeah, I guess just, just to start off, um, you know, in your roles that we were just talking about at, at you know, Case Western Reserve University and, and UH, you know, in Cleveland, in addition to the many leadership roles you've had uh, throughout your career, um, you know, what has the past year been like? And, and can you just, I guess, speak to the experiences you've had and the great amount of flexibility and resilience that has been shown in sort of the operations that you oversee during the pandemic? Sure, I'd say that we are, we have taken a crisis management mode from March to May of last year into a sort of a stasis setting from June through January, um, sort of managing in a distance world to a up ramp. I think there's a general appreciation of the fact that healthcare had first access to vaccine and that led to an incredible accountability and responsibility of being vaccinated and getting to work to provide uh, care to those in need in the healthcare space from January to um, now and a recognition in the academic space that the follow-on would be that our education programs would full tilt ahead in April to June and then be, we're assessing back to normal in July, which is actually quite remarkable. I think our healthcare back to normal is about 95% now and should gear up with a huge backlog. We're incredibly concerned that our sociology of, of medical care has suddenly changed because the norms for intervention, detection, management were suboptimal for a year. Mm -hmm. And therefore we're diagnosing, whether it be heart failure, diabetes, cancer, you name it, later with more advanced disorders, at the same time as the fact that on the healthcare space, we haven't figured out yet that those patients in those age brackets mm -hmm. where we expected to see disease aren't alive. Mm -hmm. So we haven't figured that out, which is devastating, but a reality. Um, and we'll see it evolve over the next three years. On the research side, in the academic spaces, you've been in a virtual world for a year. And so were you able to learn? Were you able to do your research? Were you able to be 
graduated, were you able to do your coursework, your thesis, your submission of your of your next step, whether it be to graduate school or medical school or employment? Those in, were incredibly disrupted over this past year, and I'm deeply concerned, deeply concerned that our medical schools and our residency programs around the country did an incredible disservice to those applying for residencies. The nation had a higher rate of non-fill, both for medical students seeking residencies and residency programs looking for medical students was disrupted this year. And it was disrupted because the process of interview, because it was virtual, meant that there was a disproportionate number of the higher quad first higher quartile, first quartile of medical students being over interviewed at the expense of the bottom quartile. And nobody figured it out until it was way too late. And because of the annualization of this process, it means that lives and careers have been affected irrevocably. And that's a disaster. And I'm unhappy with it. Um, it's too bad. I wish I had a solution. But those who are in these jobs making those decisions did a bad job. And, and that sort of leads me to my, my next question, which gets at, you know, what, you know, what do you believe this, you know, pandemic has sort of shined a light on, if you will, uh, you know, when it comes to not only medical education and what future physicians should, should take away from what the past year has been like, um, but also the, you know, achievements we've seen and changes in, you know, as you talked about healthcare delivery, how care has been provided for the past year, and we're sort of getting out of that now. Um, and so are, is there anything you believe Case and, and UH are doing to sort of tackle these issues that we talked about? And and uniquely uh, 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 educating future physicians uh, to be better able to tackle these issues we talk about? So um, I'm gonna break down that complicated question in a couple of parts. When I began my career, I was an intern at Hospital University of Pennsylvania mm -hmm. and had an emergency pulmonary failure patient arrive and mouth to mouth resuscitated a person with Legionnaire's disease, mm -hmm. which hadn't been diagnosed. And six months later, I was amazed I was still alive. At that same time, we started taking care of men predominantly with this weird immune suppression syndrome. And that was the first cases of AIDS. So I witnessed two undiagnosed <clears throat> diseases very early in my training that transform medicine. Um, we're still living with the consequences of AIDS. And, you know, nobody gave me a word about it in medical school. It didn't exist. So welcome to the club. So those were transformational events in medicine, and this one is too. And so we all learned to scramble and to figure it out and to get ahead of it and learn from it, and and that's medicine. So, um, you know, I pulled out my my 
HIV AIDS experiential background to help me get through the pandemic. And that's medicine. And if you think you learned in medical school, the diseases that will educate will remind you how to practice in the future. That's not it at all. What you learn in medical school is how to manage a crisis, how to manage a patient and how to be resilient in the issues that come up that you'd never heard of and never experienced and never were trained for. That's medicine. Get it, get used to it. Um, so, and I think our physician groups have done an incredible job in whatever subspecialty they are in to manage um, with incredible aplomb the complexity. I fully appreciate that more people have died of COVID than died in the first years of HIV. Um, but the strain and stress on the healthcare, the anxiety it brought to patients, to populations, to physician groups has been overwhelming. Um, and yet I think Cleveland as, an ep as a population epicenter did probably as well, most likely better than any other population epicenter in the country because it coordinated across institutions. Mm -hmm. yeah. It managed resources incredibly well. It implemented very, very thoughtful approaches to managing its staff, students, um, uh, interventional therapeutics, uh, intensive care units, um, incredibly well. I mean, just incredibly well. So whatever happened nationally didn't happen in Cleveland because we took care of it. And, um, uh, you know, I don't want to try to overly state it, but the facts are Cleveland handled it. Mm -hmm. And it, it is a blessing of our high quality medical care, but also people intervened in creative ways, both with with geocoding, you know, uh, by May, we had geocoders who told us where the cluster was in the city. So they figured out and they handled and they brought all that intellect together in a coordinated way, very, very effectively. And when it came to testing issues, it was managed when it came to best practices, it was managed when it came to how do you care for people on the floors, it was managed when it came to uh, vaccination. The rollout of the vaccination in Cleveland was, was really quite good. And the university actually implemented a testing policy in the fall with 90% compliance, 95% compliance, which continues today and has offered testing and then vaccinations to the city as needed very effectively. So um, this week, the university is vaccinating 3000 people. Pretty interesting. I mean, we're not a vaccination site, we're not a medical care site, but the university figured out how to deliver a vaccination to the community. Right. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess, you know, going more broadly about sort of everything we've talked about thus far, how has your, you know, experiences in clinical roles as a physician influenced the way you sort of 
carry out your responsibilities in the administrative roles that you hold today? Medicine is a continuum, let's face it. So um, in every element of, of um, the field of medicine, the practice influences, the education influences the research in a circular fashion. So um, on a daily, weekly, yearly basis, what you learn in the one-on-one -on -one encounter with a patient influences how you educate and how you do research and therefore how you administer. Um, so it is a remarkable uh, continuum. And um, I, I don't know how to say it better than that. Um, you know, uh, the practice of caution and care in the COVID space at the practice level, you know, advised me on how do I adjudicate my um, education programs, the coordination of academic activities at the, at the school level and at the education level. So they all, it's a total intertwine of activities. One informs the other. I feel sorry for people who aren't physicians. I don't know how they get by day by day. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I guess sort of going back to what you were getting a little earlier, um, you know, what initially got you uh, interested in medicine, and, and why specifically did you choose to go into uh, hematology oncology? Um, when I was an undergraduate, <clears throat> I didn't do very well in quantum mechanics. I was a physics major. Hmm. And I said, well, there's got to be something else I can do. And so I went into biochemical sciences. And that made it pretty clear to me that although my family wanted me to do a PhD, that I wanted to do an MD because I saw the networking between uh, care and healthcare and science. And then in medical school, uh, our hematology block was the most appealing to me. And I latched on to the individual who was the, ran our small group discussion and um, took on an interest in hematology and specifically in stem cell transplantation. I did my first stem cell transplant in the mouse in 1971. Um, uh, and my research is in stem cell transplantation in mice. So there you have it. You know, most of us don't fall very far from the tree. So. Absolutely. And, and, and in your, uh, you know, specialty, you've had many uh, accomplishments in, in uh, you know, the research you've done in, you know, DNA repair and stem cell therapy. Can you speak to, you know, the tremendous level of innovation, you know, we're seeing in this area, uh, you know, including your work and any trends you see moving forward in, in those areas? Well, I've always valued the ability to take the concept to a therapeutic interest and endpoint. So um, the first example of that was um, a therapeutic we did when I was a fellow in which we actually gave, took bone marrow from patients and gave the leukemia cells of the bone marrow 
a in vitro treatment for 48 hours called something as crude as four ball ester and then wash the four ball ester off and give that back to patients because we'd proven in the laboratory that would force the differentiation of the leukemia into normal cells. It was incredibly crude, but we gave it a go. And then uh, when I started here, we took the concept of mesenchymal stem cells and developed the first five clinical trials with mesenchymal stem cells which were for, in the world, which were performed at university hospitals based on the scientific conceptualization of the stem cell population impact it would have. Uh, we later developed the gene therapy protect bone marrow from chemotherapy. And we now, 20 years later, we're doing that clinical trial with the National Cancer Institute. We've developed a small molecule based on DNA repair concepts that's now in a bunch of clinical trials nationally. And we've most recently just announced um, that Amgen, a huge pharmaceutical company, has purchased the rights to a small company we started um, called Rodeo, which is designed to be an anti-inflammatory regenerative therapeutic small molecule development. Um, we'll see what happens, but it's gotten to that point. So at every point along the way, I said, how can I take the next big concept, discover and invent new um, therapeutic uh, around that pathway concept, whatever, and then how do you bring it to value and benefit through a commercialization strategy that will allow it to get into clinical trials. So to me, it's all about taking the discovery of a pathway, of an approach, of a cell, um, of a defect in cancer, whatever that is, and navigate the treacherous waters of therapeutic development. And then finally, the commercialization strategy that allows patients to benefit. Absolutely, and and, and uh, it's it's really amazing work. This is uh, my last question, but you know, what advice uh, would you give to young people interested in medicine? You know, based on your career experiences and, and accomplishments, and, and in addition to the topics we've discussed today. Huh. Well, it's complex. You have to find your passion and what you enjoy, uh, and you can't get distracted away from it, and then practice it. Um, uh, you know, I have two children in medicine. And they certainly don't do what I tell them, um, but they're both incredibly passionate about what it is that they're interested in. One's an adolescent psychiatrist at NYU and now leads the psychiatric unit for the foster care program, which is, you can imagine is huge in New York City. And that's a passion, you know, an incredible number of, of children need help and she provides that help through a network of you know, 30 psychiatrists. My son is at Penn and is a hematology oncologist taking care of um, mental cell lymphoma, CLL, and he's the Philadelphia expert in those diseases. And, you know, he does not view himself as a scientist and doesn't want to be seen as a person who fusses with designing complicated clinical trials, but he's an astonishingly good physician. And that's his passion. So find what it is and run with it. There's always space and a place for that next um, intensely interested physician. 
Um, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Gerson, for making uh, time today. It really means a lot, especially with all of your other responsibilities. So again, thank you so much for making the time. Well, um, thanks for asking good questions. Good luck. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope my interview with Dr. Gerson provides important insight not only on the challenges healthcare institutions have faced throughout the pandemic, both in terms of medical education and healthcare delivery being virtual for a while, but also the amazing research being done in this time. And even though there are many issues we face today, whether or not they began with the pandemic, there's so much we can look forward to in medicine and improving the health and well-being of everyone. So, again, thank you so much for listening, and remember, we can't just consume healthcare. We have to understand healthcare.